0: As usual, this is the Gas Giants. That's Gav. Hi there. He's over there. And Gav is, for the second time in our podcast series, bouncing up and down like an overexcited Labrador because he gets <laughs> to talk about his second favorite thing in all the world, which is not his family, uh, but his Thelonious Monk. His first <laughs> favorite, obviously, being Charlie Parker. Uh, but after that, I'm guessing I'm right here, aren't I? Uh
1: yeah well pretty much yes uh
0: yeah no I, I i do i do really love Thelonious monk's music yes yeah, yeah. so i got that one right um yeah. right so what we've actually got is it's a kind of a weird angle on this which is very very helpful for me because it's going to be tough to get me to listen to all the Thelonious monk that Gav wants me to listen to, all the old Theronius Monk recordings. I really want me to, me to tie him to. up and make him listen to a lot of Theronius Monk. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, <laughs> But what we've actually got is something completely different, which is a a tribute album from, what was it, 82? Uh, it's made in,
1: in 84,
0: actually. So I'm a little off. A tribute album made in 1984. Uh, this is one of Hal Wilner's tribute albums. One of his earlier ones. Um, uh, mm-hmm. where, you know, it's a double LP initially, uh, released as, so it's a bunch of, I think the way it was made is that Hal Wilner over some period of probably a small number of years used his connections in, in the music business in the recording business to get his pals or people he can get in touch with to record their versions of Thelonious Monk songs. And he sequenced it all together, uh, in this album. Which mm. is a very curious thing, especially now looking at back on it, what thirty or year, forty years afterwards? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. or thereabouts. Well, it's a. Uh, I, I, th- I think stuff
1: like this has maybe become a little common in a little more common in the forty years that's uh, that's gone you think?
0: Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I with think there've a- been a few with, projects like with this. actual, um, you know, with with. I, I have the impression that that. The, I, the 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 principle of sequencing and indeed editing together uh some tunes back to back you know you know basically um making them go directly one into the other that's mm. kind of gone in the uh, you know in the mobile app and 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 playlist age
1: maybe but uh of course what what made this album really quite revolutionary at the time was the fact that if uh, you know if you owned a record company uh, and maybe you were prepared to do a couple of licensing deals uh, because so many people have played Thelonious Monk tunes, uh, it would have been easy for you to put an album together of a whole bunch of jazz giants playing different Thelonious Monk tunes. You would have done that uh, basically at at the editing desk without involving any contact with musicians at all using old tapes of stuff that you already owned and had already paid for but that's not what he did he took uh, he took artists often artists who you wouldn't even uh, directly associate with jazz and got them to create a bespoke interpretation of a Thelonious Monk tune yeah which was a pretty revolutionary idea at the time yes Hal Wilner was was known for eventually for for making exactly this kind of project, uh, but this was only the second time he'd done it, and his previous album uh, or collection had been um, the films of uh, Wilner, all, all the music from the film from the Fellini film *Armor accord Yes. Uh, using various various jazz
0: musicians, Nino Rota
1: music, and uh, yeah, all the music of Nino
0: Rota. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the in the modern age, the, the the Silicon Valley people have have tried very hard. You notice how I used a polite word there. Um, mm-hmm. The Silicon Valley people have tried very, very hard to get on this playlist game and to algorithmize it. And yeah. some people seem to find that satisfactory. I certainly have never found it uh, mm-hmm. anything but awful. Um, and most people I know mm-hmm. who care about music feel the same way. So just this business of putting together existing recordings, I think is already a fairly difficult thing and requires a creative spark, a creative oh, spark yes. that you might get from somebody like Hal Wilner. But going way beyond that is, uh, is getting them to make a new recording for your album. Mm. Now I just want to make a plug for a friend of mine, uh, Ron Lessard oh, please, yeah. has done a, a truly amazing classic of this genre with a single LP, just a two Uh sides of 12 inch with 500 originals on it. Wow. (laughs) Even better. The technical production of this, the technical marketing of this, imagine how hard it would be to cut the master for this. Uh. All 500 tracks are locked grooves. Uh. So if you're into vinyl, that's the one to get. Wow. What, what's yes, that record called, Tom? It's called 500, RRR 500 rocked, Locked Grooves. Various 500 Locked Grooves by 500 artists. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well. Well, we can put a link to that in our, in our, yes, our sub-stack Yes, yeah, we page. should
1: put, put a link on, <laughs> on the sub uh, page but, where you can follow along with show notes to all everything that we're talking about.
0: But Ron Lassard was one of the first people uh, to give me a gig when I started performing when I got to Boston. So he's a, he's a true one. Oh, right. True good guy.
1: Okay, well, uh, we just mentioned Fellini there. Of course, the uh, there's there's a clue right away uh, because this was um, kind of a start of the, uh, or you know, could be seen as a, as an idea of the uh, music producer as film director, in a way. Mm, sure. And uh, one of the things that uh, that Fellini particularly was known for was suddenly putting somebody into a movie just because they were there. And often it was somebody who who you wouldn't think would fit into this movie, and it was basically they'd, they'd only have a walk-on or maybe a line or whatever, and they were there specifically to make you think, "What? Well, hold on, wait, wait a minute, she's in this? It, is that? Oh, yeah, it is, you know. And in that time, it, you'd actually woken up the audience a little bit.
0: Uh-huh. Uh,
1: this was an idea, which then became terribly attractive to a lot of uh, f- film directors in the nineteen eighties. Uh, for instance, it's uh, it's quoted by um, uh, Bruce Weber, who uh, who made the Chet Baker uh, biopic "Let's Get Lost," and there, there are all kinds of strange people wandering through that. Who you th- is that? oh yeah it is you know and um even we did another actually we just one of the last shows we did um uh, where we did miles at the movies yeah uh that movie siesta has got all kinds of weird people in it who you think you know what i'm sorry that's grace what's grace jones doing there (laughs) oh yes in the uh, actually as actors yes yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, he he said in an interview how Wilner, just to just kind of bring this back to reality a little bit, that uh, one of he uh, he started out as as basically making the key tea and moving the mic stands at uh, at Atlantic. Yeah, and he was very very interested in how, um, you know the fact that uh, all these all these quite diverse musicians were were involved at Atlantic so a producer would just be making you know an album for one of them and uh, say oh listen hold on let me just get on the phone and get you
0: Rassan Roland Kirk yeah. for this track and mm-hmm.
1: it's it's the same sort of idea
0: yes. in a way yeah if you're um if you're in that environment uh, you know you've spent some years working at a company like Atlantic
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And especially if you're the kind of person who, who like how obviously was, yeah, I'm not calling him by his first name on I <laughs> Like I knew him. <laughs> um, he's, um, uh, you know, he, he turns into the kind of producer who, who's clearly has no problem fronting his own money and, t- and, and, and calling people mm. up to, uh, to make recordings or to put on shows. You know, he's a, yeah. real pro- he ended up being a real producer type. Yeah and
1: uh, you know this this project is obviously um i mean it was was probably put together on the back of the previous project which probably did okay but it's obviously so much driven by his personal sort of idea of wouldn't it be interesting if i mean we should uh, we should talk about the the other albums cuz uh, Armored accord comes first then uh in 84 there's uh there's this this album of Thelonious Monk tunes 85 there's an album of of Kurt Vile tunes yes. with all kinds of different people interpreting the Kurt Vile that yes. was quite successful and that also they did a lot of that live oh which must have been interesting
0: was it a uh was it a stage show or i mean a concert or yeah. a, yeah, right. so just they, a they actually setting, managed yeah. to
1: get one or two events where they could where they could do uh, at least the bulk of the album live. Right. Okay. Cool. Um, then there was uh, there was an album called Stay Awake, which was uh, filled with uh, the music of Walt Disney, which yeah. uh, which was apparently very difficult to put together because Disney's quite yeah tricky about the whole copyright thing. Yeah. Then there's a very strange album which I actually rather like. Um, which is called uh, Weird Nightmare. And it's the music of Charles Mingus played uh, in part on the instruments of Harry Parch.
0: Sounds excellent
1: yeah it it actually it's it's
0: pretty good i mean you know but it's a very strange idea you've got to admit well <laughs> yes, I mean parch has uh stood the test of time in my opinion, so from that point of view, mm-hmm. why not and Mingus has an interesting approach to compositions mm-hmm. uh that are quite flexible so yeah, why not? Give it a go. No, I, I was I was very very uh, positively
1: surprised. I because uh, I, I read this and I thought, well, um, first question, why? And two, you know, second question, how is that going to work? But uh, but I, I listened to it and it really does work. And some of the some of the interpretations are really beautiful. Oh, but um, when was that then, done? do You know, uh, that was nineteen ninety two. Okay. And in 1998, he did an album called Whoops, I'm an Indian, which um, seems to be kind of like, almost like a drum and bass album where he's just using... uh, No, it's it's not. It's a bit more like My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, if you know that album. Yes. Where uh, he's putting together music with a whole load of archive recording. Yeah. Which is... uh, I don't know, I suppose it's it's pretty good. I don't know if it's if it's dated all that well. But uh, all of these, links to all of these, are on our Substack page. Yes. So, having cleared the way a little bit,
0: um, how did you come into contact with Thelonious Monk? I think it was probably you, um, initially. Uh, you must have had this album, um, the one that's got Lulu's Back in Town on it. And played it for me back then when uh, when you yeah. we were trying to get me to <laughs> to do something suitable in in, in our band. <laughs> um, so I, I, that's that would be my guess. I don't know for sure. Okay. Uh, yeah. My relationship with Helonious Monk has been a little on and off. I mean, I I've always one of these things, and this is actually a really cool opportunity. Mm. To explore this idea is that as a piano player is always been tremendously appealing, you know, just a very attractive Mm. piano player. Love it. Otherwise, just sounds like musty old jazz to me. You know what I mean? So in this, this isn't this album is actually an interesting uh, way to approach the music because what we're dealing with is not his piano playing. And not his recordings, but his composers, his compositions, rather. His compositions, uh, yeah. As uh, arranged and interpreted in the mid-1980s or early 1980s.
1: Yeah. In in about the most diverse amount of styles that you can possibly imagine.
0: (laughs) Which is actually another thing worth worth talking about up front, is that this is a period piece. This album really is an interesting cross-section of what different sort of jazz and jazz peripheral or jazz-related musicians were up to Hmm. during that very trying transition period for jazz.
2: Hmm.
0: And, you know, as we go through the tracks, I think that 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 will probably come out, but um, it's you know you've got a real sampling of what people were up to back then that that feels quite familiar to me because i was exploring this kind of music a lot back then mm-hmm. um and you know it, it's it sounds different now and it sounded different yeah. before yeah Don't you think that's fascinating yeah it sounds absolutely. like the 80s yeah
1: yeah yeah but uh but it is it is all still appealing
0: i find well for you I, yes
1: yeah yeah, yeah. You mentioned that album, um uh, which is It's Monk's Time. That's the name of the album, right. You it's see, I, I, I came to this to this album, this uh, this That's the way I feel now. Yes. Um I came to this because uh Spex Morrison had it. Okay. Uh Specs at the time was very interested in production and, and recording and stuff. Yes. So this had yes. this had really appealed to him and uh I listened to it he he then uh sort of taped it onto two rather lopsided cassettes for me because it's a double album and uh and these two cassettes went around with in fact I think I've probably still got them somewhere uh but they they went around with me for for many years and I would put this on and listen to it but of course my uh, my relationship with Thelonious Monk had started a little bit earlier so I would have been about 14 or something like that and I was, was listening to to a lot of jazz and a lot of bebop and um you know also this is the time when you uh You know, there's there's no internet. There's no uh, there's no way of downloading songs or listening to stuff online or anything. Your options are um, buying records, which is quite expensive, or buying second hand records, which could be which could be surprisingly cheap back then. If you went into you know Oxfam or whatever, and somebody was clearing out their collection, Um, or uh, taking records out of the library. And making cassette copies, or going through your parents' friends' record collections, yeah, things like that, and listening to the radio, and and also taping things off the radio as well, yeah. So, I was round at this lady's house. Uh, I think she was the friend of uh, so friend of somebody. Anyway, she had just gone through the most unbelievable divorce. I mean, really, really horrible. She'd been married to somebody who was, who was just a complete crook. And um, it, had, it had all finally, you know, gone through. And as a 14-year-old, I, because I, I was sort of not really involved in the conversation, so I began to look through the record collection. And she noticed this, and she turned around and said, Oh, you can take whatever you want of those. They're his. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. I, so I was like, All right, Mrs. I'm helping myself here. You know? How much can I lift in one <laughs> <laughs> Well, he didn't have terribly much that interested me, but he had. I knew the name Thelonious Monk because I knew that this was somebody who'd played with Charlie Parker, and so I took this album home, uh, which I still have. Actually, it's a it's a uh, UK pressing, um, CBS Walking Eye, uh, and. I put it on, and immediately when you hear the opening of it, it's like, "Oh my God, what is this? Can this guy play, or what? Is uh, is this a joke?" And that would be a good point for you to play the opening of this. Let's do it. that uh so that it was a huge
0: s- you said i got
1: the point <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you well, get the point no this is a very very curious thing i think there's the point is not at all clear no i mean you have
1: to uh, th- this was unlike anything I'd, I'd really heard heard at the time i also wasn't aware exactly how difficult what that piano opening actually is I mean, it's uh, it's done in a very old-fashioned style, which we call stride. Yep. So basically, with the with the left hand, you're hitting on the on beats. You're hitting a bass note, and then on the off beats, you're hitting a chord. So bang, ching, bang, ching, bang, ching, on and the, that's just your
0: left hand. And the guitar, we call that boom chick. Okay. Yeah. yeah so you're kind of basic, you're alternating between the first and the fifth mm-hmm. on the bass, and then you fill in the rest of the chord. Yeah. Uh, on the off, on the offbeat yeah and then of course uh
1: playing this uh playing the 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 right hand which you know uh, drifts in and out of the rhythm there he's, he's very very skillful at that when it sounds like he's hitting two notes at once he's actually trying to get a quarter
0: tone out of the piano somebody he's says you can't get a quarter tone out of a piano
1: well, he's trying to bend a note like a form player.
0: Well, you can't which, bend a note on a piano. Exactly. So, so you hit two notes so at so once. That, so that's just talk.
1: Nah. So, but uh but I could not deny that that incredible moment when uh when there's that moment of suspense and I mean imagine this the first time you hear it, you don't know what's gonna happen next, and suddenly there's this explosion when the when the sax comes in. And the, the drums and the, the
0: oh my god, that's you know electrifying. It's an, it's an extraordinary transition, um, yeah. and the setup for it is 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 sort of interesting because he settles down with the playing, slows, it goes down to the half the tempo he was playing before, mm. and sets up some chords very nicely, clean. They had this this yeah. this kind of dirty playing before. But once he get once the once the saxophone's playing and they're playing the tune and start playing the solos, he's back to yeah. that messy playing. Yeah, right. So so there's this there's this two parts to this transition. He sets you up for it, and then uh-huh. oh, and then the band comes in, and yeah, this is a wonderful example of just what I was saying before because I love the uh, the uh, the piano playing. Mm. And then you get the jazz band comes in, and you've got the tyranny of the jazz drummer and, <laughs> and, and and the walking bass, and then you play the tune, and maybe the tune's good, maybe it's bad, maybe you enjoy the tune, that's great. and then we've got noodling so and then a, and then in all of this, you've got you know frankly the it's more interesting to listen to uh monk's accompaniment than the rest of the band or to the soloist
2: mm-hmm.
0: and you know it's all that stuff just doesn't sound mm-hmm. i mean i it's like can can we go back to that other bit you know i love it well i uh, this this bothered me this this record
1: that i just got you know and i i couldn't figure it out at all because the uh, because that lot of the playing on it and on some of the other tracks as well. It sounded so sparse. Mm-hmm. And so unlike any other jazz pianist that I knew, and, you know, to this day, I, I know, I know people who are like really into jazz, but they just cannot take Thelonious Monk. Hmm. But, um, but I, you know, on, on some of those, uh, we, we just, uh, we just talked about Boom Chick. Yeah. Um, on a lot of those chords that he's playing, you can hear this absolutely stark open fourth. Yeah, and then he moves them, moves those fourths parallel. Yes, which doesn't sound elegant at all.
0: It sounds very angular. No, I, and, this is know, not. Dem- it's, it's meant to not, sound angular. It's clearly meant to be challenging. There's, yeah, there's something, uh, there's something in arrogant and in your face about it. Okay, well, I responded to it, uh, you know, very
1: much as uh, as my fourteen-year-old self, sort of responded to it in the right way because I was I was troubled by it. Mm -hmm. I was fascinated, but I was I I couldn't work out why anybody would do that. Yeah. So then, um, a friend of mine at school, uh, Robert Kelly, his dad was um, was a was an amateur jazz musician. I mean, you know, amateur in the sense that he, he earned his money doing some, something else. But I think he was pretty good, actually. But um, but uh, we had to, I was around at his place, and we had to go and pick him up from some lunchtime session on the Saturday. He was quite an abrupt guy as well, a little bit scary, you know. And uh, I, so I began to sort of talk to him and say that I like jazz. And he's like, oh, yeah, do you? Uh-huh. And, uh, so then we got back to the house and he sent everybody else away and him and me sat down and he started asking me about my listening habits and who I liked. <laughs> so, 14 year old me is suddenly alone with this guy. And he asked, do you listen to Thelonious Monk? And I told him the story about this album that I'd just got, and then I couldn't, I couldn't work it out. And he said, oh, right, okay. Listen to this. And this is when he played uh, the trio album to me, which starts with rooty, "with Little Rooty Tooty, which is, which is absolutely in your face and so amazing. But the track that really got me going was the track Baya, which we've also got up. Bye.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, and I, and I love the playing there. I could do with a little bit less aggressive drumming, but you know. Jazz well, it is art flaky, so yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah, no but idea. it's
1: a, but but the the sort of polyrhythms that are going on there, and the different sounds that yep. he's getting out that kit make
0: it all worthwhile. So we're going to have to decide. We're already more than half an hour into this stupid podcast, <laughs> and so we're going to decide: are we going to talk about Thelonious Monk next, or are we going to talk about this tribute album? Because I'm genuinely interested in how Monk ended up playing this way when he did and being. Such an important figure. Because hmm. that's a biographical question.
1: Oh, well that's uh, I can I can maybe try and give you the, the sort of quick overview North of that. Outline. He was um somebody who uh uh he came from North Carolina, but his parents moved very early to uh to, to New York. He started to to get uh piano lessons, uh but um well, uh, I think at a quite quite an early age, uh, and normal classical piano lessons. But yeah. uh, fairly early on, it was obvious that he wasn't going to stay in classical music. Also, you know, there wouldn't have been too many openings for somebody no. uh, who was black at that time in classical music. Yeah, go and compare so, that with Nina S- Simone's story. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, except, oh, well, what's what where this has an where this has kind of an effect on classic on his uh, technique is because his technique is anything except classical i mean those you can hear those fingers are flat there is none of that you know curved ball of air thing that piano teachers try and teach you these are flat and <laughs> it's, it's it's an anti-classical technique very yeah. percussive very loud yeah but actually that's, uh, that's one of the things that makes, uh, that makes his piano playing sound different. And he, he ended up as the house pianist at Minton's Playhouse. Okay, around what age? Um, I think by the
0: time he was 17. Okay, so this was doing a company work for, for stage performances, yeah? Yeah. And of course,
1: Minton's Uptown
0: Playhouse
1: was where all the beboppers went after hours to play.
0: Uh-huh. Or just to earn some... some, some.
1: Yeah, or to, to, to earn tips, but just basically so that they could all play together. They would have jam sessions there on certain nights of the week. Um, I think uh, Dizzy Gillespie said in an interview somewhere that they would also get fed. Okay. <laughs> so uh he ended up hanging out with uh with Parker and Gillespie and uh, all of those people what year are we talking now uh this would be uh probably around the sort of end of the war yep oh sure not sooner uh well, when was he born nineteen seventeen
0: so you don't know for sure you're just kind of the, yeah guessing yeah okay and
1: um Yeah, uh, his first gig was for Coleman Hawkins. Yeah. Who was part of, obviously, the generation of swing players, but who also had an ear open to what was coming next. Yeah. And that's why later on there's a Thelonious Monk album uh, with a slightly bigger band that has both John Coltrane and and Coleman Hawkins on the same album, which is quite special. Yes.
0: So that's, that's a sort of potted history. So we did our uh, episode about uh, Chasing the Bird, the, the comic book that was about, mm-hmm. the, uh, about Charlie Parker's California years. Go back yes. and listen to that, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, um, or not, it's up to you. That basically picked up after, uh, immediately after the Second World War, right? Oh, very close, anyway uh yeah i think well
1: uh I think most of these guys have managed to uh, stay out of the army for one reason or another
0: right but uh, yes <laughs> yeah. but the but but the, Billy it, it was nineteen forty five that's true it referred to the uh or it referred uh, just i mean that little uh, comic book referred to the the genesis of the bebop thing and i went and had a had a bit of a read about it, mm. and found, yes, that Thelonious Monk was his credited as being uh, one of the ranking first mm-hmm. bebop pioneers, which I find very interesting because what you said was his playing was by many standards not so technically advanced by established mm-hmm. piano standards, let's say. Um, yeah. and some of the, some of the horn players and percussion players were ridiculously advanced on their instruments. Yeah. Uh, and that was sort of like one of the marks of, of bebop, um, you know, technical virtuosity, let's call it. Uh-huh. And one of, and what it sort of sounds like to me, and I'm just saying what it sounds like, cause I don't know anything about these people to be honest. Mm. It sounds to me like Monk is kind of deliberately in your face about this is this is how I play, right? <laughs> knowing yeah. that it's not knowing what it is and what it isn't, uh, yeah, and uh, and 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 sort of punching forwards with don't you know a town too violent, but you know um, confidently advancing forwards with um. This is what I've got, and uh, I like it. And if you don't, you don't have to listen to it. Sort of attitude, yeah. and yeah. I think this is why I like it so much. It's a, mm. uh, uh, it, it's a making, making whatever you can out of what you've got, which is yeah. that's yes, the, exactly which is exactly the principle of improvisation that I enjoy so much.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's I think that's what draws me to him as well. Yeah. Uh, that and the fact that um, that he was able to, uh, I mean, the, there are tunes that you that you just hear, and well, I think everything that you hear by him, you know, it's a Thelonious monk tune. But he's also capable of writing just incredibly beautiful
0: ballads in a really, really amazing slow tunes. See, I'll have to take your word for that because I don't just I just don't know his compositions well hmm. enough to say but what what seems obvious also from the history is that he was a competent band leader so yeah. he knew well, how I, think, to, I think he, he was thrown how, into that position he knew how uh, well yes thrown into it but succeeded at it in other words he knew yeah. how to get whoever was available to do the right thing with the minimum yeah. of work I mean,
1: there was uh, there was something that happened to him early on in his career. I think about 1951 or something. He was sitting in a car with uh, with Bob Powell, and they got pulled over by the police. And the police found narcotics in the car, which were not his, but um, he refused to to actually uh, give evidence or, or say anything about the about the whole thing he refused to turn anybody in and the police then pulled his what was known as his cabaret card yeah which was his license to perform in any establishment in new york which sold liquor Mm. so for the next few years he couldn't actually work in public unless uh one or two clubs where uh where they you know in the sort of seedier parts of town where they weren't too bothered about that kind of stuff, they would employ him under the table, you know. And um, but he he went through uh, periods of, of quite of you know incredible financial hardship. So your point about him being a band leader, well, he had to learn how to do that because nobody would hire him as a sideman because they couldn't actually you know play if he was in the band. So he so was going to have to carve out his own way.
0: Yeah, so he he actually managed to make a. Um, so you didn't need a, uh, a cabaret card in order to um, organize, essentially, to be a producer of bands yeah. in clubs.
1: Yeah, and then um, also Alfred Lion, Blue Note, had decided that he was fantastic and started recording him. But initially, you know, there was there were no takers for for, for the records either. Yeah, I and mean, he was a very, very hard sell. When did he start recording for this guy? Uh, I think around around about the same time this thing with the cabaret card happened. It happened in the, the early
0: fifties, early
1: fifties, okay. okay. fifty one, fifty two. Yep. All right,
0: yeah, yeah. So
1: well after the uh, the the recording strike. Yeah, the uh, the later like that record that we just heard. That's uh, from later on in the fifties. That was actually for Riverside. Yeah, which was. Uh, had a riverside had a terrible reputation as being the uh the 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 record label that uh that basically only employed people with a drugs problem because you could go in with um with any band and record a side and they'd give you money immediately.
0: Mm, good, <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so if you were um if you were interested if we if I am interested or somebody else in the audience is interested to hear what the monk sounded like uh, when in the 40s uh, is there anything to recommend there
1: uh, yes there is uh, the the genius of modern music volumes one and two mm-hmm. which is a good sort of uh, collection of the of the earlier recordings yeah and uh, oh something else we should point out before uh, which would might bring us back to this that can bring us back to this tribute album. On the Substack page, I have put together a uh, a playlist. It's a YouTube pl- uh, playlist, so you don't need to be in, on Spotify. Of the sort of standard versions of a lot of these tunes. Okay, cool. So it's, it's like
0: most a- of. So it's like the same sort of playlist that we've got on the uh, on the compilation album, but the originals, or sorry, yeah, uh,
1: yes, like or uh,
0: a, 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 most a canonical a canonical recording thereof. Yeah,
1: yeah. exactly. I yeah. think about ninety five percent of them are by Thelonious Monk. Well, thanks for but, doing that uh, Mark. There's uh, there's there's one or two which are which are different, but they're but they're sort of standards issue
0: recordings.
1: This it's when, Whereas, the, when of course I, the recordings on this are quite a bit more freaky.
0: Yes, well, it's a. It, it was when I saw that playlist um, uh, go up, then I realised. Oh, yeah, he's bouncing up and down like an overexcited Labrador. <laughs> so, uh,
1: yeah, what we have, as I said, on this uh, on this uh, this tribute album, we've got a very diverse selection of. of uh, of artists, um, there's also a list on the Substack page of not all, but most of these artists, uh, and uh, a, you know a sentence for each of them, saying where they've uh, what they've done or who they are, just to give you a, a sort of brief idea. Um, of course, you know you you can. St- Start from that place and then go down the, uh, the rabbit hole. So if you're listening
0: fancy. while driving, please don't. But everybody else who's on public transport, <laughs> go and look at it on Substack. You know, it's right there. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what did um, what track stood out for you out of all of this? What did you like? The only version that I listened to was on YouTube. And this raised a question which is completely peripheral but Uh the way i remember double albums uh in the uk is you is you pull out on the you know you've got your gate or whatever you've got side one Mm -hmm. and you flip it over Mm -hmm. and you've got side two Mm -hmm. and then you take out your second lp and you've got side three and side four
2: Mm -hmm.
0: yeah yeah now in the u.s it's different ah because they're in automatic sequence you see, I don't understand that. This is the question. So here you start with side one and then you mm-hmm. take out the, then to get side two, you take out the next LP, the, the second yeah. second piece of vinyl. Then you flip that to get side three and then you go back to your first piece of vinyl for side four.
1: Yeah, yes. Uh, that's uh, this is what's known as automatic sequence. Do okay. you remember those those record players that used to have a tall spindle? Yes, yes, yes. Of course. And you would stack records on top of that, and yes. then uh,
0: when one record had finished playing, it would drop the so, second. Oh, right. Record. So you could you could pick up two LPs. Flip them over and do yep. the proper sequence. I see, yes, yes. Exactly. So this is why you, uh, right. you know hipsters in the
1: fifties would say, Man, don't flip your stack.
0: <laughs> oh. Oh, I had no idea. Yes, I'm glad I asked now. Yeah. Don't flip your stack. So this is this is what's known as automatic sequence. Huh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, a stack as being a Sequence. Yes. Yeah, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. The relationship between stacks and sequences uh-huh. because at radio, uh, radio station, the stacks is you is often a reference to current music and you know, heavy rotation. Basically uh-huh. uh, they're, they're sort of sequenced where you can flip through the, the vinyl close to you. And then when you play it, you put it at the back which is a right, way of yeah. a way of suggesting to subsequent DJs that day that this has been played very recently, and okay, know, uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's it. I didn't know
1: that, but mm-hmm. yeah,
0: okay, that makes sense. That's actually the
1: same principle that I use for my record
0: collection. Well, anyway, the, a, the version uh, the version online that I got on well, the version on YouTube that I got starts mm-hmm. with side three, so it's not automatic sequence at all. All oh, right, um, so it starts with Todd Rundgren. Oh yes <laughs> which is really wonderful. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's, I I the first time I heard this record that was that was something it's that's an absolute a, standout.
0: Yeah. I mean it's it is. it's 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 demented. <laughs> yeah. De, obviously deliberately demented. Um and it has a little bit of that 80s early sequencer mm-hmm. sort of and you know and uh, 80s fm synthesis kind of sound to it which isn't so appealing but successfully done i thought yes and it so happens that my friend Avery, who i hope we can get on one day to talk about philosophy with us mm-hmm. uh actually worked for todd Rundgren for for some time hmm. and has stories to tell about that interesting musician actually is like um mm-hmm. i wonder what I, I, I've never really managed to get a, a, a clear handle on on what kind of a thing Togdrunrin hmm. is or was, but uh, obviously you know, a, a very creative person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, what, else, what else? What else? Stood out? Actually, I thought number one here, the Bruce Fowler version. Um, what's that called? Bruce Fowler is Thelonious. Oh.
1: Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which starts it all off.
0: Yeah. I mean that's a, that's actually quite a what a great opener. Yeah. It's very short. Yeah. Just forty-seven seconds long. Actually, the uh, the discogs page for mm-hmm. this album is super useful uh, because it's got the you know it's got all the personnel for each track, which is important for us jazz yeah. people, of course. Uh, you notice the word, Well, use it's, of the word it's very important for
1: this album because because all kinds of weird people show up in, in tracks who you wouldn't normally have thought.
0: Yeah. And, you know, and yeah. Well, Bruce Fowler, um, to me to Bruce Fowler, Tom Fowler, obvious to me, uh that that's most famous from uh from The Mothers of Invention. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, but that sounds great. You know what? What shall we do? How how shall we approach this? Because uh, you know I've got notes on all of these, but these mm-hmm. these were made more than a week ago, and in order to have a, a, a more, let's say, sympathetic critique, I mm-hmm. should probably have a little t- listen to each track, and I don't mind doing that because mm-hmm. it's pretty easy to do. But how do you want to approach it? I us think- see.
1: Actually, what's what's really good about uh, about the beginning of this album is the way that you've got this forty second uh, track, Thelonious, which then goes straight into Little Rooty Tooty. Mm-hmm.
0: and the that 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 join there is just absolutely seamless. And that that's a that's a kind of thing that Hal Wilner was very proud of. I mean, it was that that he thought was his his great artistic uh-huh. contribution was he's not just putting a playlist together. He's putting an album together. Yeah. You know, something where you yeah. sit down and you listen to a whole side straight through and, and yeah. rejoice in exactly that kind of transition.
1: Well, yeah, it really is uh, conceived of, and uh, we have to... We have to acknowledge that cassette tape was was actually being used a lot at this stage. I think yeah. people were, you know, lots of people were buying cassettes and listening to music in their cars at the time. But uh, when you have this as a four-disc album, you really are supposed. I mean the way that it's the way that the the track sequencing is there. You're really supposed to sit down and listen to how one track
0: flows into another. It's very much picked like that. I'll take your word for that. I think it's clear that that each side is yes carefully done. Whether or not each you know you, you can go from 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 what was it? Let's take the numbers here: B five to C one. I'm whether or not that's really. Sequenced. I'm not so sure, but but yeah. I mean, um, Hal understood understand how to you know how to master an LP. That's clear. Yeah. I mean, he's got gaps where there should be gaps, and no gap where where he wants to produce a particular effect. Mm-hmm. So, for example, let's see on uh, on the C side. Yes, towards the end of that side, we got the two great uh, guitar freakouts. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Shockabilly. With yeah. Eugene Chadbourne, crisscross, followed by Mark Bingham, Jackie Ing, uh, mm-hmm. with three guitarists on it, and so those are, you know, those are those are almost put together so that if you weren't listening carefully, you wouldn't notice mm-hmm. there was a new track on. Yeah, but yeah, some other some other ones, and there's a gap in there now. That, actually, Eugene Chadbourne. Now that I mention it. I have a feeling that Eugene Chatbourne is a nice sort of companion artist with uh, Thelonious Monk. Ah. Uh, Because he's, you remember watching him in the, um, On the Edge. Oh, yes. Right? He was the one doing a demented, uh, doing the demented um, country music. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's the same sort of attitude. It's Eugene Chadbourne takes it a lot further, but it's the same sort of attitude, a love for the music, but a sort of discomfort with, Mm -hmm. or maybe a discomfort combined with an inability to do it in the most sophisticated way. So then turn maybe 90 degrees around
2: Mm
0: -hmm. and do it completely your way, but with the, but with the love of the music still expressed in your own way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very much like, um, a little bit like, yeah, I mean, I think we've talked at one stage about the, the Lester Bowie album, the great pretender.
0: Yeah. That's a nice, that's a nice example. Affectionate (laughs) parody. Yes. Yeah. There's something, yeah. Affectionate parody. Fine. Now, Maybe Lester Bowie and comparing him with um, with Thelonious Monk. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You think? I mean,
1: yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, it's, it's funny. Um, the uh, the uh, the year that Monk died was the year that I saw the Sun Ra Orchestra, mm-hmm. and uh, I, they did a version of Round Midnight. Okay. So you know, listening to John Gilmore playing "Round Midnight" was quite something, and uh, it was uh, is is actually actually it's really beautiful. But a thousand miles away from the version of "Round Midnight" that opens side four of this album. Yeah, let's. Uh, remi- I'm going to remind myself. Which is myself. A, a one. Actually, it's a pretty good arrangement. It's. Uh, I like the way it starts. So it's a little bit like three orchestral pieces by Alban Berg there for a moment.
0: <laughs> well, it's metal percussion.
1: And with that chord change he shows his hand. <laughs>
0: question um Mm -hmm. how tough must it be to be a pianist invited to take part in something like Ah, this Yeah, right because monks playing is so specific yeah uh you can play the pieces but if you start imitating a style that's gonna have to sound awful isn't it yeah yeah I mean you don't want to sound yeah, well, like you're imitating. Yeah, of course
1: that's uh, that's that's kind of uh, that that recording we just uh, listened to was Joe Jackson. Mm. So, uh there's a good example of a of a pop artist who you would never think could actually do something with a set of jazz chords, actually turning in quite a respectable uh sort of solo there. Yeah. Um I, I mean, the I, lo- I like how that arrangement starts. I think actually a lot of the arranging tricks repeat themselves too
0: many times in the course of the tune. Which is actually one of those 80s things in, kind in of jazz, is, yeah. isn't it? You know, they, I mean, the, you know if know you were
1: to- making this album today,
0: you'd probably get somebody like Herbert to do it. Mm, I don't know. I, I yeah. don't know what that means. And I don't know what jazz today is like. I have no hmm. idea. I mean, there's... I'm A.C. Washington, that's about all I know. I try to avoid jazz, right. you know. Yeah.
1: Well, uh no, but your your question is actually really interesting. Because the only the only pianist I can think of who managed to do kind of the Thelonious Monk thing and make a success out of it and not sound like just an imitator was Stan Tracy. Really? Interesting. Yes, stan Tracy. Yes, he was. uh, If you you know, you can find '60s recordings where he sounds a lot more like Monk. Yeah. Uh, But I mean, you know, he was. uh, He he had that very percussive style. Yes. Of course, somebody else who'd who'd gone up, who'd uh, actually come up as a house pianist. Yeah. I think you must. uh, You must actually get that when you're playing in a loud
0: environment. (laughs) I suppose. And uh yeah. Uh the other thing we should note about pianists and, and for this kind of work uh is you're usually playing on a shite instrument. Yeah. Because you don't get to take your own piano back in the day. These were acoustic pianos. Yes. Were <laughs> Andre
1: Previn had a wonderful story about the um about the piano at the Blackhawk in San Francisco where Thelonious Monk uh, was was there for a week and complained about the piano for so long that the management eventually gave in and had it painted.
0: (laughs) 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, on this album, what have we got in terms of solo piano? We've got Dr. John playing Blue Monk. Yeah, so this might be a way of. I actually that's, like this lot That's a really good version of it as well. To guess the original was a little less bluesy. Uh, well, yeah, that's, uh, that sounds more like a,
1: a boogie woogie pianist. Uh, yes. Actually, yeah, playing it. Although, what's interesting, um, the, the tune of Blue Monk as da 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 yeah. And I did watch um, Benny Wallace, great, great uh, tenor player, who also surprisingly collaborated with Dr. John at some stage, uh, do a version of Blue Monk where he just played through all the gaps. Hmm. And uh, did this, this this steady stream of notes, which also included the tune. Typical I, I, I fucking jazz. I was looking around for a for a uh, for a recording of that because it was very very exciting when he did it. <laughs> um, I haven't been able to find one. If anybody's got one out there, please get in touch because yeah. uh, it was it was a live uh, live thing that I saw uh, at Sir Alfish here. Um, and actually, that version there—that also fills in all the gaps. Yeah, you know. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Of course, the other, uh, the other uh, wonderful piano version we've got of something is Panonica. Yes, which is Barry Harris playing it on uh, what's known as a tack piano. Right. Let's. Um, what is a tack piano? For uh, a for tack me? piano and, uh, is a. Uh, Basically, what it says, it's if you put drawing pins in English or in English, British English or thumbtacks in American English Mm -hmm. into the hammers of uh, of the piano. uh, And don't try this at home, kids, because it does then ruin the hammers.
0: Well, (laughs) not good for the strings either.
1: Well probably not. I don't think it's good for anything. But don't do it. I, I have heard of heard of uh, a very long time ago of, of um of somebody doing it to a, a piano at a at a sort of school in Britain because they were they were doing I don't know, some kind of handle oratorio that needed a harpsichord. <laughs> All right.
0: Uh we're listening to Panonica, right? Yeah. Uh, of course you can get a patch that'll do this right. if you've got the point of this sound is to make it sound like an after-hours uh, dive.
1: Well, oh, uh, I think kind of the point of the sound is that uh, when Thelonious Monk made the original recording of this tune, uh, he he did it on the Celeste, which is a, a keyboard instrument, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. like the, the Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. Yes, is. yes. Yes. Okay. So yeah. it's a it's a key. It's like a piano, except uh, the
0: the metal hammers hit metal bars. Yes. So it's like um, uh, glockenspiel type thing. Glockenspiel. Yeah. 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 It's exactly. it's like a keyboard with a glockenspiel. Yeah. yeah. So I guess I was responding to what that what that what that sound it, it has, a, has, a, has a has a cultural meaning for me. It's, uh, what it means to me. Was it? Ah, uh,
1: yeah. To yeah,
0: way. yeah. Well, I'm gonna have a look through my notes here because we don't have time to. No, no, we don't listen to everything here. Well, come on, you must have loved the John Zorn version of Shuffle Boil. Well, yeah, I mean, I so I liked it for a number of reasons, but it's 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 John Zorn when he was doing his his uh, sort of game call stuff, you know, with duck quackers yes. and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> which is actually a very John Zorn thing. Sorry, a very monk thing to do, isn't it? It's well, listen to like... the
1: original version of Shuffle Boil, okay. which has uh, which which has the saxophone squeaking at the at the edges of what it can do. Oh, oh cool, right? You know, there it's, you go. it it doesn't sound a
0: million miles from this. Quite honestly, well, saxophone <laughs> players in jazz have for a long time been making noises that are at the limits of tolerability. And John Zorn has really taken, or back then in the 80s, he really took mm. that um, and ran with it, let's say, mm-hmm. and <laughs> went really crazy. And what I like about John Zorn is he's uh, he's very, very good at it. Mm. Um, so he's he's able to make all kinds of interesting effects using a real saxophone, but also using... Uh, saxophone parts in unusual ways and also mm. using things that aren't anything to do with a saxophone and putting it all together that was i mean his his skill in being able to do that stuff and to integrate it with uh with more conventional ways of playing that are obviously very very nice mm. uh, uh always excited me but it and also john zorn's you know what the 80s were like this there, st- there was still some interesting stuff going on on the big labels like yeah. warner, warner had i think it was warner that had a number of john zorn albums yes. um philip glass um, yeah 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 you know um, 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 um uh, laurie yeah. anderson yes exactly you know i mean this, this kind of stuff was was there was still money to be made there and if the, his his skill as a as a musician and as a band leader and composer was very apparent oh, and, and as a producer on those albums was very apparent so they were quite i don't know very impressive i loved them hmm. but then uh, you know the, his his imp- his improvising approach could be so just bitch ass annoying <laughs> like, but obviously that's what it's supposed to be hmm. Yeah. Right? You know, obviously he's his 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 he's trying to be in your face, aggressive, kind of just to be obnoxious and mm-hmm. see where that goes. Okay, yeah. Yeah. You know? And <laughs> yeah. but he's got the but he's got the musical chops to make it work, I think.
1: Yeah. Well this this version of Shuffle Boil is um uh it is absolutely fascinating as well. How it's—it's it's uh, got a
0: Celesta on it. Yes, <laughs> uh, what does it, uh, it's got a, a, a it's got a balloon on it at some stage, <laughs> probably. <laughs> yes, I mean it's a. Um, uh, and now on this, Wayne Horvitz is actually um, very interesting player. I don't know if you're familiar with any of his other work, but he's uh, he's played a lot with Bill Frizzell, or he had back in the day ah, played yeah. a, with Bill Frizzell. Very interesting player, uh, keyboard player. Um, yeah. On this recording is another is, a, is another guitarist who's a complete enigma to me, Orlando oh. Lindsay. I I can't fathom the interest in Arto Lindsay. Not that it's huh. bothersome to me, like, for example, Alan Holdsworth, you know, it doesn't, or John Schofield. It doesn't annoy me. It's just like, I don't understand this at all. Um, but, you know, it's nice. The, the, the important thing about why I like this is I'm not having to listen to jazz rhythm sections through this. at least this three minutes, right? Hmm. Um what was the album where, what was the song that, that, uh, that really is a fairly big. Oh. Yeah, I'll find it. I've got notes here. <laughs> I've got notes. So, the Terry Adams and Friends in Walking Bud, that that drummer, super annoying. Jazz drummers sometimes do this. Mm-hmm. There was another one that we actually listened to already. It was the one I think that was following uh, on C2? No, no, no. No, Not wrong, no, no. No, no, I'm confused here. I've lost my place. But uh, there, was, there was one where, where it's quite a, quite a big band where the, jam, where the drummer is just doing this heavy, ham fisted swing the whole way through tyranny of the beat there i mean you understand what i mean by the tyranny of the beat Hmm, kind of no you don't right so if you're a if you're a drummer Mm -hmm. and maybe you want to have the kind of freedom that a soloist in your band has all you end up ever doing is a drum solo right everybody else stops playing and you just do something and most mm. of the audience is going, I hope this isn't going to last long. Hmm. And the rest of the time, you're stuck with a job. You've got to get the groove on. That's, that's mm-hmm. it. That's all you can do. That's, that's your job. You've got to do it. And if you don't do it, you're not going to get another job with that band, right? Fair enough, yeah. Yeah. No. Tyranny of the Beat. Hmm. So if you're a creative musician in a jazz band, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to start throwing bombs around, right? Uh, All this syncopation, whatnot. And when you're trying to listen to a modest and lyrical saxophone solo, that's really fucking annoying. (sighs) So which was the track? I, don't, I can't can't fucking figure it out now. Yeah, but at least on um, Shuffle Boil, uh, you know, we've basically yeah. got programmed drums, and uh, you know, th- there's just there's nothing jazzy about the rhythm at all. All right, here we go. Uh, let's take uh, Terry Adams and Friends in walking in Walked Bud in Walked Bud. Yeah. All right. Oh, in Walked Bud, as in Bud Powell. As in Bob Powell, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, because you've got to be a really good jazz musician to have a, a single name... You know, and right there we've got the ensemble playing. that's great. You know, there's no problem mm. with that. A swing band playing as a band uh, doing the tune. But yeah, that's nice <laughs> Several minutes later, drummer still trying to take the foreground.
2: Hmm.
0: You know, be supportive. Well, Come on. Get out of the way. I don't know. That was uh, that was
1: uh, well, that was one of the drums in the in the Thelonious Monk quartet. And he's on a Well, lot of didn't those... you
0: notice earlier I enjoyed listening to um the quartet best when we were just listening to the piano solo? I, well, look, it's look, you you can sigh and get get irritated but this goes to uh, this is one of the ways that we can better understand the difference between Mm -hmm. us right there's something going on here because i'm actually curious about what it is about jazz that i like and what it is that i don't like Mm -hmm. and somehow i think it's to do with stylings and and sometimes exaggerated stylings Mm. so if if a particular approach to playing jazz drums has been established and now we're going to Go out and do that, and it's 1984. And we're going to go and say, Right, let's bring back swing because you know it's the 1980s, we can do what we want, hmm. And you end up signing like that,
1: okay? Frankie Dunlop was, uh, was, was a probably a more, uh, a more sort of normal, uh, drummer, but you've got Roswell Rudd who was a, a mainstay of a lot of lot of avant-garde jazz, a lot of free jazz. He's on that first Archie Shep album. Yeah. For Impulse, uh, yeah. Four for Train. Yeah,
0: the, the the bone solo is kind of fun here.
1: And um, Pat Patrick, who was, you know, 40 years long in in Sun Ra's Solar Orchestra. Right. Yes. Now I recognize the name. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So these are these are actually people who are who are sort of active in the free jazz field, and they're playing um, they're playing in a more sort
0: of uh, it, well inside the envelope, shall we say, style. Well, they they I mean the drama keeps well the rhythm section there keeps it well inside the swing envelope. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, yes, I wasn't enjoying that. I and mean, I started off good, and then there's parts of it. But again, it's like uh, uh, there's, there's aspects of this I want to listen to, and then there's other aspects that are turning me off. You know what I mean? Well, that's why it's such a selection. It's just yeah. look at it as a kind of box of quality. You know what, <laughs> what I mean there is that you're listening to a piece of music, and there's some stuff I want uh, to listen yeah. to, and I wish this other player who's supposed to be in a sporting role would be a little more supportive. Okay, fair enough. You know?
1: um there's a, uh, actually let's see if we can cheer you up with a couple of the other guitarists sure what did you make of the of the
0: steve Kahn version of reflections on side one problem there is ugly synth sound
1: yeah, well, uh, it was the '80s.
0: Yeah, exactly. Times then, were hard. <laughs> we had to make do with the DX7. Yes, <laughs> I, it, it depends what keyboard you've got, you know. But uh, yes, good sounding synths were 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 still were still a little bit further pricey, away. But yeah. I, I like the I like the the, the voicing yeah. of the chords. No, it's a, it's a nice um, yeah, it's a, it's a nice arrangement. And, yeah, and, and well do you played. see what
1: I mean about the 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 Thelonious Monk could also write a really really beautiful slow tune?
0: Yeah, yeah, that uh, I mean, is you know. It's, I have to admit, listening to this, I didn't. I, if you know the song, if you know the songs already, you probably it'd be a very different. But I didn't get the feeling of a compositional coherence. Uh, I did. Okay. Well, I mean, this, it's hmm. from from my. Uh, from my my one time that I listened carefully to the whole thing right through making notes as I went Mm. Um, and I guess that's uh, because I guess that's because of the way the album was made they they really want I mean Hal really wanted to get musicians to do something a bit new
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, clearly Monk could compose because people are still playing his songs today and yeah and he wrote lots, and we've got the evidence here as well. But um, I don't know what to say about him as a composer. I just still haven't, even from this exercise, mm. I really still haven't got much of a... Yeah.
1: Much of a well, it's funny, this, it. this particular tune, uh, I'll maybe see if I can record a version of it for, uh, for this show, actually, because I did, I did uh, you know, work it out, and I sat down and had a look at the chords, which are very interesting. Uh, they're, or they're not what you expect, and they're not what you hear. Mm. There's Monk also has this thing with a. At one stage, there's an F minor chord, and like an F minor 7, but yeah. it has an E
0: natural in it. Okay, so we've taken a, uh, a minor 7th chord and bumped our 7th um, seventh seventh to a major. upper semitone, yeah.
1: Yeah. Which is a really, really very strange sound, particularly if you then put a ninth on so, top of that. That's, yeah, and then you can put a put a, a ninth on top of that as well, which is even even
0: more Yes, very jazzy, extremely <laughs> yeah. um but there's a you know, they do you know the the uh, the James Bond chord? Oh, yeah, of course that, yeah. It's got a very similar sound, yeah, hasn't it? God, I've never thought of that. Yeah.
1: Anyway, I was messing around with this tune, and uh, I quite like turning up to work early when there's nobody else in the concert hall yeah. and just warming up on stage. And I found myself warming up with that tune with reflections, okay? Because it, it uh, uh, and it's, it's something that you know, if you just concentrate about where you're going to put each note and how to build build it all into a phrase and everything and where to use where to use different shadings and stuff it's uh, it's it's quite an, an interesting little exercise to get your
0: ear in first thing in the morning <laughs> before the trumpets arrive <laughs> there are some musicians on this album that are featured more than once
1: yeah they were probably available um available well
0: obviously steve lacy must have had yes, more of a, a he got sort f- of like four tracks on this right yeah and it's a weird here because i've got at least one steve lacy album that i quite like and mm. his sax sound on this is pretty rough and yeah. what you think about it, but I had to although skip some of I that. Do,
1: uh, although it's, it's not uh, entirely pleasant listening, I do quite like that
0: duo with, uh, with Elvin Jones. I don't think I know that one. I very much appreciate his uh, improvisational abilities, you know, his, his ability to take mm-hmm. a, let's say, a complex or perhaps completely uh, atonal Mm. Uh, situation and do something interesting with it. Mm. But the tone on this, it's got a quacky sound that's quite mm. yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I gotta dig those out somehow. But you know, it's such a such a hassle trying to find um uh, LPs in my collection because they're not sorted. <sighs> but uh, well. another musician who's on here more than once that I particularly admire, actually, Joey Barron, the drummer. Mm. Um, very, very nice. Um, I enjoy that great deal.
1: I was I was going to ask you actually about the now uh Chris bedding yes. of course has turned up in the uh in uh the as yet unissued episode on Nucleus which we'll have to get round to. Did he ever doing ha-
0: get involved with Gong? No. Okay. No, I don't think so. I don't so. know why I think I, he might have.
1: Yeah. No, but he he kind of um he kind of went into the into the industry fairly quickly. You mean um, as a session
0: guy?
1: Uh, no, actually, as, a, as, as a A&R and producer and stuff like oh, that. Oh, I see, yeah. He was, um, I, oh, God, a few years ago, somebody left Chrissie Hines' autobiography here, mm. and I read it because it was here. And Chris Spedding turns up in, uh, in the whole process of, of discovering and signing, signing The Pretenders, for instance. Okay. But he seems to have kept his chops up because uh this version of work is quite something
0: uh, with Peter Frampton on it. yes, that was interesting, wasn't it? yeah, um very fusion yeah, but uh, but very well done yes, certainly competent, but you've got this um this this is one of the ways in which it's, this album sounds eighties mm. uh, where there's a, a sort of an insistence on complicated tonalities complicated um complicated chords and dealing with them uh, with your melodies
1: hmm yeah maybe although uh i'm amazed uh, how well it's you know if you think this tune was written in the 50s mm-hmm. and it's pretty amazing how well uh, not just not just harmonically but also uh, also rhythmically it uh, it fits into into that particular arrangement.
0: There we go. Let's give it a go. have to take that back it's probably a lot to do with the instrumentation and the way they're you know the way yeah. they're playing the instruments that yeah. makes it sound 80s prog um, yeah but i i wouldn't listen to that and think oh well obviously they're adapting a, a monk tune
1: there no no but well if you actually you should you should maybe dig up the original for us just for a minute uh, you know go on youtube What's find the us tune? find us an ori- the original recording of of work which I think actually is on that same uh, is on that same album, Reflections, that, uh, that Robert Kelly's dad played to me. So it's a trio recording. <laughs> So, harmonically, <laughs> yeah. uh, I think all I've really done is put a rock beat behind it. Yeah, uh, it's it's yeah. amazing
0: how well it works, really, isn't it? <laughs> um, yes, if you if if you're yes, if you subscribe <laughs> to early eighties fusion sound, yes. Uh-huh. But I mean that's that's a killer example again of just how appealing Monk as a piano player is. Yeah. Oh man, love it. Yeah. Oh, Bobby McFerrin.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's kind of funny as well. Uh, interestingly, Charlie Rouse, who was Monk's tenor player for a long time, said that Friday the 13th was about the most difficult Monk tune to, uh, to improvise on mm-hmm. because there were so few chords in it. Right. And, you know, to keep coming up with ideas was, was actually really challenging. Particularly on on moments when you know monks stop playing any chords behind you at all. Sorry, who said and this? Was, uh, this was the tenor player Charlie Rouse. Okay, who was a uh, monk's tenor player from I think
0: proper a proper
1: bebopper. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, from fifty nine to about nineteen seventy, a free jazzer wouldn't wouldn't make such a complaint. Probably not, but uh, yeah. all the same it's It's kind of funny because there's enough chords there for you to actually have to pay attention to them, but then there's not all it is is just a sort of downward sequence
0: jing, 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 what's wrong with making it easy for the listener to follow along? I don't have a problem with that
1: oh no but uh but if you have to keep coming up with ideas to put on that's what that's
0: what he was trying to say. then freak out a bit you'll be fine. <laughs> Well, he was, and he's one of the great, sort of, uh, great
1: unsung heroes of that particular period in jazz, because he's an
0: amazing tenor player. While you listen to anything by Bobby McFerrin, Mm -hmm. here's what you have to ask yourself, and you have to ask yourself this question, and only this question, for the duration of while you're listening to Bobby McFerrin. Uh Uh-huh. What must have bit been like to have been Mr. and Mrs. McFerrin? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Do 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 But do do do
0: so 80s, right? Mm, yeah, <laughs> the sound of the 80s. It is. It is a little bit.
1: Uh, are you familiar with the movie uh, "The Leningrad Cowboys Go America"?
0: No, not oh personally. Oh my god! But, <laughs> but I, but I worked. I worked for Nokia when they oh, were the ambassadors yeah. <laughs> for, uh, of Nokia. Yeah, they made a lot of money out of Nokia. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, there's a there's a scene in that movie where they get locked up in prison. For a, for a couple mm-hmm. of days, and they they uh, so they're all sitting in this prison cell, and one of them starts going to, and then they all start adding rhythms on top of this, and you know doing and uh, uh, by the end of the week. Or, or the end of the something, or the third day, they're all they're they're doing this incredibly complex polyrhythm, and every yeah. all the guys in the jail are wearing ear and they eventually just throw them out. Say right, get gone. You know, <laughs> that'll work. <laughs> yeah, mm. see if I can find that clip and put that on the Substack page. All right, come on, we need to wrap this up.
0: Yes, there's one more that I thought was worth a mention oh maybe the mysterioso did we mention jackie yang already yes that's right yes so it's got the yes the multi-guitar craziness but this is done as something that was actually quite common well it was there were a number of examples of it in the 80s where you've got a sort of like a a, a riff going on and a the sort of jazz addition to a crescendo so the Mm -hmm. whole thing is just got you've got a fairly you know big ish band there's like eight nine ten players there or something hmm. and get going and then the whole thing um just sort of builds with um i guess the rhythm section keeps going and then your various soloists are are, are start playing more and more together as it goes mm-hmm. on and i quite quite like it but you know yeah. it does have that 80s sound when you're trying to do it on a monk song in the 1980s no, now and then then of course you've got that uh
1: that sort of uh, marching band sound, uh, yes, with
0: uh Boliviar, blues, uh, yeah. Bolivia, blues yeah, it's got a little bit of a Dixie sound, or maybe second line. I uh, know. Yeah, second line, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you like the uh, the Blay Play version of Mysterioso? Yeah, I did. Um, yeah, I did. yeah. It's yeah, it's um, that's a solid band. Yeah, um, God, it's they got so n- classic. They got Yeah, they got a number of really, really cool players there. Um, yeah. actually, you know, um, Steve Swallow is another of the musicians that appears many times on this album mm-hmm. and he's a very, very good, um, accompanist, um, bass player who plays, you know, he's, he's not trying to steal, <laughs> steal any, steal any soloists, uh, mm. um, you know, like these bebop drummers, you know. Uh, that I keep complaining about, but yes, uh, and it's and it wo- yes, and this one's actually got uh, Hal Wilner, producer of the album, credited as uh, providing the voice of death. I yeah. couldn't actually identify that when I listened to it. But, yeah. yeah, well, uh, but it also has, of course,
1: Johnny Griffin, mm-hmm. who uh, made a couple of albums with uh, with Monk in the fifties. Okay, uh, I think in '58 he made two albums as a member of the Quartet, and then yeah. uh, in '57, before that, he was—I uh, think he was working with Art Blakey for a stint. They made an album called Art Blakey's, uh, no, uh, Thelonious Monk meets Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers. So he's he's from that sort of you know that that classic bebop period, and I thought putting somebody like that in the middle of of quite such a a wonderful arrangement of Mysterioso was interesting. Yeah, yeah actually, hold on. This is, this is the whole point of it. The uh, one of the albums that's uh, the Riverside albums with the Thelonious Monk Quartet that he appeared on is
0: Mysterioso. Okay, cool. That's yeah. a nice choice then. Um, so what do you, do you think for this particular recording? Was that a multi-track? Um uh, no i think it may well have been live actually more or, yeah. or less live yeah i i wasn't sure i thought um it it sounded so so meticulously put together it might have been at least some multi-tracking i don't know
1: they, they may, uh, may have done some of it but i think they would have uh the the big part of it would have been put down live i think they just would have really carefully rehearsed it yeah you know but it's, uh, yeah. but it, it really is a great version of it.
0: Yeah. What's uh, what's Carla Bley up to now? Is she still active. She's, She's still, still active. Alive. Yeah, as far as yeah. I know.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah cool. So, um, for you on this album, what's missing? Oh my goodness, uh, that's too difficult. <laughs> um, I, I, I would, I would have to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just a second. <laughs> Well, I mean, I could only say Lulu's back in town. I mean, it's just yeah. Well, that's he didn't write that one. It, it, plenty of people, I'm sure, have played it since. I, do you know? It's not a that. It's a very strange choice.
1: It's not something that that it's not a jazz standard. Okay. You know, it's not that that's another thing that sort of well, stood if, out. There
0: you now. go. You see, you asked me the wrong question because okay. d- probably you played that album to me when I was, I don't know, a teenager, I don't yeah. know, something young. And that's, you know, that's that's the definitive monk yeah. to me because for, for that exact reason. All right. Well, so, can we go at it from another angle then? Which artist
1: would you? If if you were if you had the job of of saying oh we've got one one track too few on this album, which artist would you approach and say choose a
0: Thelonious Monk tune? And... You you you're asking yourself this question. It's clear. Well, I'd like to get now, your uh, input we'll, first. <laughs> what artist active in nineteen eighty to eighty five? Yeah, I'd go with Cecil Taylor. Ah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. because uh, I mean, um, very vigorously, well, a very muscular player like, yeah. uh, like Monk, a, 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 a very sort of uh, defiant in your face, um, yeah. individual personality as a musician. Yeah. Uh, I mean, sort of like relentlessly pursuing a, a, a personal artistic vision. Yeah, that's a very good choice.
1: That's excellent. You know, I, I obviously I had a choice worked out. Now, uh, now that we've actually done this whole show, uh, Are you revise it. Yeah, I, I wonder if I would have asked cool. Stan Tracy to do something.
0: Yeah, actually, Stan, Stan a good Tracy. Stan Tracy
1: would be a good choice. Otherwise, yeah. I think I would have. Um, I would have liked a version of a of a Thelonious Monk tune called Oscar T, which is a which is a very uh, short little melody very simple but very very powerful and i would have liked to have heard what sunra did with that <laughs> yeah that would have been interesting but uh yeah. but yeah stan tracy would have been the, just to have the quartet that he was he was running with art
0: theming and everything yeah. or even some solo piano yeah yeah, yeah tough um it must be tough for uh, like any uh, like we said any of the um any jazz pianist um to contribute a, a tribute uh solo piece yeah. uh, you gotta gotta respect anybody who had a go at that you know? yeah yeah
1: well I, I do hope that um because barry harris who who appears on this uh he's um i actually i've had a got a lot of Uh, Pleasure from watching his YouTube explainer videos Sure, so I do hope we're going to he's gonna cross our path again in the later show
0: There's called they're not called explainer videos Um, explainer, okay Well, they're tutorials really because they're a bit bigger than just Okay, you know, yes, I mean if you're actually sort of kind of giving a lesson yeah. Uh, then, yeah, that's not exactly the same thing as a splainer, is it? No, no.
1: So there we go. Listen, uh, this this album. Um, it'd kind of be nice if you got it on vinyl because uh, there's a there's a big double sleeve gatefold sleeve, and it has a lot of information on it. Some interesting yeah. little articles in the
0: in the inside. Yeah, I mean the the amount of. The amount of text you need just to list the personnel on these things is is too much for a CD. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you'd know, uh, be getting your reading been... glasses and, and and your little magnifier out to read yeah. it. It never seems to have been out of print
1: somehow, although um, I think in in various formats. Uh, for some reason, the album. Second hand seems to be a lot more expensive in America than it is in
0: Europe. Yeah, well, you should
1: be able to pick up a copy of this album secondhand in Europe for
0: around ten euros. And here it's about two fifty. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I, it's not my problem. I'm not going to buy one. Uh, okay. On, well, on no, tra- I'm trying so. to give some 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 after sales service here for our yes. customers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Some consulting. Yeah. But it's worth a look, this album. Yeah, I mean, if you're into that kind of thing, why not? I mean, yeah. look, it's it, it it's on YouTube. You could spend three minutes just flipping through the, the tracks on YouTube because there's a clicker for each one of them, each mm. track. And so if you're into it, listen to the whole thing. And if you're not, you're not, forget about it. You know what? If you got to this point in this stupid... Podcast. <laughs> you might as well go and listen to the record. <laughs>